team of workers in Transformation Station. So they always have a good time down there uh, learning about Jesus and uh, having, you know, activities and, and, um, and teaching down there. Um, I'd like to welcome all of you to uh, Redemption Hill. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here of our church. And if you are, if you are new or new-ish, we would love for you to stick around after the service for what we call Next. Uh, Next is just a, a, a quick gathering after the service. We provide a light lunch for you. It's all free. And uh, just provide a simple overview of kind of what we're about. So it'll start um, probably a few minutes before uh, noon by the time we uh, wrap up the baptism downstairs. And, uh, and then it'll last for about 45 minutes. You can, you know, be on your way with your other activities for today. But uh, if you've never attended next, we'd love for you to stick around and, uh, and join us. And then also, uh, this coming Saturday, we have a unique opportunity as a church to host the Helping People Biblically Conference. So uh, we have a professor friend that's flying up uh, that's going to provide a, a, tr- uh, a seminar-style uh, conference for us from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Hope Fellowship Church in Cambridge. They're going to host uh, with a facility for us. Uh, but it's going to be a great time, and everyone is, is invited to this, okay? So uh, basically, if you desire to be a better friend, which is a really good idea, um, if you, if you desire to be kind of just a better, you know, small group member in our church or, um, you know, more effective family member to help people along through life, then uh, this conference is going to really uh, help you grow in those areas. And, and I can just speak for myself. I think we all have a little bit of room to grow and how to help ourselves, uh, but also to help uh, other people. So I hope, uh, hope you'll be able to attend that. It's free. Please RSVP though, by the way, because uh, if you have kids and you need child care, then we want to make sure we have uh, that covered for everybody. Well, uh, one of the joys lately for me, uh, there, there's always something exciting going on at Redemption Hill. We had a great time yesterday uh, helping our city with the Medford Square cleanup, partnering with other uh, friends in Medford to beautify uh, the Medford Square area. Uh, of course, we have this conference coming. There's always something great going on. Uh, but, but what I've been most excited about recently, and I'm praying that God just kind of keeps this in my heart, is the opportunity to uh, share what Christ is all about, who he is with people that are, that are new to Christianity, all right? So you guys know there are so many people in our city that they are either brand new to Christianity, as, as you'll hear Jesse's story later, that was really uh, her reality. Um, and then there are others that have kind of hung around uh, Jesus and Christianity to a degree. They may even identify themselves as, as Catholic or, or Protestant, Christian. And yet, um, if you started to ask them questions about like, so, so what did Jesus do and what did he say and why did, why did he come and why did he die? Did he really ri- rise from the dead? Like there would just be a, a lot of questions left unanswered, right? And so it's been a joy of mine over the past few weeks to be able to, to mix it up and to hang out, to do lunch, uh, to, to, to hang out in an explore group that we had last month of people that are just saying, you know what, uh, I don't have this all figured out and I want to learn more. I want to explore more about who Jesus is, why he came, and how that might relate to me. And so what I find is, number one, you know, it's funny. We, we sometimes in the church, we use words that we think everyone knows. And then it's like you're speaking another language. You know what I'm saying? Some people kind of jokingly call this like Christianese. You know what I'm saying? So like we, we kind of assume that people know the words that we're, we're trying to communicate, like, like a word like gospel. Okay, like so they're 
four gospels in the Bible. Uh, those four books of the Bible are referred to as gospels. We talk about even our core values of a church, like uh, of our church, or gospel community mission. And the word gospel simply means good news. That's it. That's a two-word definition that we don't want to take for granted that people even understand what the word gospel means. But, but what I found is if you really want to get to the heart of helping someone understand that gospel, that good news, we need to help them understand not only the life that Jesus lived, but also the death that he died and why he died that death. So as you get into kind of the trenches of Christianity, okay, as you really begin to understand who Jesus is and and why he died, what you begin to see is not only maybe entering into the Christian life and becoming a follower of Jesus, but even if you followed him for most of your life, we, we discover this irony, okay? The, the clearer we see the death of Christ, the more we understand our lives, all right? The better we grasp his death, the more effectively we will live. The greater our comprehension of his death, the greater clarity for how we should live our lives on a daily basis. We could say this, as his death becomes clearer, our devotion should become greater and greater and greater. You see, we, we never move away from understanding the cross of Christ and what that has to do with our lives every single day. And so today I want us to think about this idea of death and devotion, and I want us to to think about what it might look like to respond to the death of Jesus with extravagant devotion. What might it look like to respond to the death of Jesus with extravagant devotion? Okay, so we're jumping back in to the Gospel of John. We, we started this series back in September, and we took a, a break around Easter, and we did this For the City series, which I hope you really enjoyed, as we considered how we can live as a city within the city uh, here in Medford and the surrounding cities and be a church that doesn't just simply kind of do our thing in here, but we really live life out there like Jesus wants us to. And, and so today, actually, as we kind of jump back into the Gospel of John, what we're going to find out is that everything that that we're learning about Jesus in the Gospel of John has everything to do with being a church in the city and for the city and being just a a, a Christ-like follower wherever God places us, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace. And so as we pick back up in the Gospel of John, what we're going to find is this. The cross of Christ begins to loom larger and larger and larger. As we work our way through uh, chapter 11 and the first uh, part of 12, as we wrap up 11 and and get into chapter 12, we're going to see a couple of times where the death of Christ is indicated as it's coming, and it's coming very quickly. And so again, I think we we should consider that not everyone who maybe says, yeah, like Jesus, he like he lived and he died, like they may not really understand what the cross is all about. Even in our culture today, surely we, we still see crosses, right? Tattoos of crosses and, you know, uh, necklaces with crosses on them and maybe ornamental decorations of, of crosses. 
And so a great kind of question just to start a, a great conversation with someone is this. is like to say, hey, what does that cross mean to you? Like it, it, must, it must mean something if, if you're wearing around your neck, right? Or, and sometimes it's just like a family thing. Like my, my grandmother gave me this or, you know, this is in memory of, of, of a, a loved one. And, and those, are, those are all uh, good, good, you know, ideas and and. But, but there's something much deeper than that, right? As we consider the cross of Jesus Christ. So, so first off, as we look at these words in the Gospel of John, I want us to, to understand why Jesus was crucified, all right? Why Jesus was crucified. And I just want to give you two sweeping factors that we see in John 11 and 12, okay? The first is this. People were jealous, the people that familiarized themselves with the, the, the life and the, and the work of Jesus, uh, many of them became jealous of him. And that's what we see starting in verse 45 of chapter 11. This is what John writes. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, what, let's stop right there. What, what are they talking about? What had Jesus done? Well, if you remember at Easter, we looked at the first part of John chapter 11, and we saw that this man Lazarus died, and Jesus showed up on the scene, and he caused him to rise from the dead. All right? Pretty big deal. News spread very quickly, and this is what verse 46 is referring to when it says, some of them went to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus did. Oh, now he's causing people to rise from the dead. All right, so, so this is what then happens. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, the, the people were jealous. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, highly esteemed in the eyes of most of the people. And it says that they gathered the council. This is referring to uh, the, the group of people known as the Sanhedrin. There were 70 people plus the high priest who made up the, the, the Sanhedrin. It was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. They were the ones that had the authority to say, hey, this person is out of line. We need to get them back in line or they are so out of line. They're speaking blasphemy against God, such wrong things, erroneous things against God that not only are we going to kind of correct them, but we're actually going to do away with them. And so what we're going to see is that's exactly what they wanted to do with Jesus. And, and why was that? was because they were being threatened, right? Jesus was performing these signs, these miracles, and his popularity was rising, which meant as more and more people wanted to hear his teaching and see what he did and, and then began to believe in him, that there was an inverse relationship there, that, that their popularity started to decrease and their importance started to decrease. And so it was out of envy and jealousy that um, they uh, started to, to seek to bring these charges against Jesus and have him arrested and ultimately crucified. 
We see this at the end of, uh, of, of our passage that we're studying today in, in chapter 12, verse 19, when, when Jesus comes into the Jerusalem during the week that he's going to, to be crucified. And it says the masses of the people started to, to come to him, to flock to him. And, and they were saying all of these great things about him, as we'll see in just a few moments. And at the end of this, this, this uh, story, it says in verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, here they are again, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. So the, the Jewish people, the leaders, they were, they were jealous and they were also fearful that if, 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 if enough people started to follow Jesus, that there would just kind of be this popular uprising and that Rome wouldn't like that and they would start to take away uh, some of the autonomy that Israel steer, still experienced even though they were under Roman governance and authority. And so they, they make this plan to take out Jesus. And, and why is this again? Well, it's because Jesus had performed the unimaginably unthinkable act of raising Lazarus from the dead. So, so if we can kind of like just rewind a little bit, you know, kind of think about like Jesus caused this dead man to become undead. Like if you're keeping score, okay, that doesn't happen. All right? doesn't happen. Like, people don't die and then come back to life, number one. Number two, other people don't cause other people to come back to life unless, of course, that other person is God himself. This is why they wanted to annihilate Jesus. And I hope you caught the kind of twisted irony that John presents in his gospel as he giving this dialogue and this conversation, uh, what we see, it's, it's in verse 48. He says, if, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I mean, I'm just kind of stepping back and trying to ask the question, like, was there no one in the room that, that just kind of would want to raise their hand and say, like, could you define like this? That would have been a good move. On maybe, maybe someone did that and they just got kind of beat down in silence really quick, right? But, but, but could you define this? Like, do we mean giving sight to blind people? He can't go on like this. Do we mean um, feeding hungry people? Do we mean putting strength and vitality back into the legs of lame men? He can't go on like this. Do we mean the teaching that carried such authority and yet such grace and mercy and compassion that the people would say, we've never heard anyone speak like this before? We can't let him go on like this. Giving life to death, like, we, that's, it's, it's out of control now. Isn't, isn't, isn't there a level of, of irony here that what should have caused them and what was causing some people to leap for joy, to say God has arrived on the scene? They're saying we have to take this guy out. They had a problem 
with it. And they wanted to crucify Jesus for it. But that's not the primary reason, I would say. It's not the primary reason that Jesus was crucified. And perhaps this will amaze you even more. Jesus died on the cross, not simply because people were jealous, but because he was gracious. People were jealous, to be sure, but Jesus was gracious. Look in verses 49 through 53 with me. This is what John continues to capture the conversation. He says this, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. And so we have the kind of most important person in the room, the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. He speaks up to kind of take charge of the situation. And with a ruthless assertion, he says, it's it's going to be best if this one person, this one man, this man named Jesus of Nazareth, it's going to be best if he dies so that everyone else doesn't have to die under Roman tyranny. This was the fear. But, but, but again, there's the, the irony is so thick because what, what John shows us, he explains is this. Caiaphas was thinking purely at a physical level, the reality of their lives, that, that if we can end his life, that our lives will be spared. But John sees God had a much deeper meaning that was loaded into the words of Caiaphas. You say, well, why is that? It's because at the very heart of the gospel, the good news is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. Okay, let's just stop right there, okay? Jesus lived a perfect life. He always thought, he always desired, he always wanted, he always acted in such a way that matched up to God's design. Now, just my, my assumption, my working assumption, not only because I've read it in the, the, the pages of the Bible, um, but also just because I've experienced my own life and I've hung around with a lot of people, okay, like none of us have done that. Would you agree? Like none of us have thought, desired, wanted, acted perfectly according to God's perfect design. We just, we've all massively failed at that project, okay? So Jesus, though, he lives the life that we should have lived. And he dies the death that we should have died. He, he substituted himself for us. He, take, he takes the hit for us. He steps in front of the bullet that was coming for us in our death, That is what the cross is all about. One man for the sake of all who would then look to him and trust in him. That's the gospel. That's what the cross is all about. 
the gospel can be summed up in one verse. This happens many times throughout the, the, the Bible, uh, but, but one of these instances is 1 Peter 2, verse 24, that says this, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness, check this out, by his wounds we have been healed. It's, it's death by substitution. It's, it's our life. We now get to experience life because Jesus experienced our death. You see, God made us for himself. He made us to live for him. We have not done that. The Bible calls that sin. We've missed the mark. We've missed the intention. We've missed the design. And that leaves us in this nasty predicament of, of our sins separating us from God. And you say, well, why is that? That's not very nice. Well, it's just because the consequence of God being so holy and perfect that sinful people can't, can't dwell in his presence. And so we're in this, this nasty predicament of being separated from God, but that's why he sent Jesus to bridge the gap on the cross that if we would, if we would look to him and turn back to him and say, I'm going to give my entire life now to follow your design that we can experience salvation. We can be reconciled back to God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so again, this is pretty, this is pretty sweet, all right? The, the, the leaders, they were filled with such jealousy because they feared that they were going to lose their power. But in the cross of Christ, we see Jesus giving up his power and not exercising his rightful authority by willingly dying in our place that we might have life. That's the beautiful power of the cross of Christ. And, and, and what I love, okay, what I love, I hope you didn't miss this. Um, in, in verse 52, he's, what does it say? And not for the nation only. Okay, like, translate. Not just for Jewish people. Not just for the people of Israel. But what does it say? It says, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This means... And a decent exercise might be just like, look around the room. I love this about Redemption Hill. I love this about our church. We, we, when we started here, remember we had this five-year anniversary. It was kind of a big deal. We all had a lot of fun with that. RHC, hashtag RHC, five years. All right? So if we like rewind to, you know, like um, negative one year, um, you follow me? Um, we were already praying um, that God would make us a diverse church. And why is that? Well, it's because Boston is a diverse city, but primarily God is a global God. God is a God who welcomes in diverse people, and even better than that, he welcomes in all people. So when John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible perhaps, says, for God so loved the world, the, the, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him doesn't have to die, but can have life. Or in John 5, 24, when it says that, that whoever believes in him passes over from death to life. Or when it says in John 6, 51, if anyone eats of this bread that I'm offering you, I am the bread of life, then he will live forever. Or in John 10, verse 16, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. 
And then he says to, to, to his disciples, look, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Okay, they're not like, you want to restrict love. You think love is for a certain kind of people only, but my love is much more expansive and consequently so much more glorious than that. It is for anyone who wants to come home to God. Uh, how about, I mean, is that not good? Can I get a little what's up? That's Thank you, what's up? That's good. Where, where are you going to go this week? That, that you're going to set your eyes on someone, that, 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 that those, your eyes are not going to see someone that God does not love. That is an impossible proposal. It's not going to happen. There's no one in your neighborhood, no one in your workplace whom God does not love. No matter their background, no matter the color of their skin, no matter my, the, 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 their socioeconomic you know, status. And this is just a sidebar here, okay? This is one of the greatest arguments for the veracity of Christianity, okay? This is a fancy way of saying, like the truthfulness the genuineness, the sincerity, uh, 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 the validity of Christianity. That God brings together people that once, not only just different, okay, like hated one another. This is way beyond like Red Sox and Yankees, all right? I know we got a big series this weekend, but like this is like complete enemies. God makes those people one. And I'm just saying thank you, God, that, that I could be in on that. Because I don't only dislike people, I disliked him. And now he's brought me back together with him and he's brought me back together with people that are a lot different than me. And that is a beautiful thing. This is what the cross does. So let me just ask you this morning, how, how do you, like, do you understand the death of Christ in this way? And if so, how are you responding to the cross of Christ? How do you respond to the cross of Christ? I mean, for so many people, and this is no judgment on them, this is just the reality for them, and we need to be gracious and patient with people, even if they don't see Jesus and his cross in the same ways that we do, right? But, but for so many people, it's just kind of, you know, like, that's nice. What a great example. Kind of like an acknowledgement, like kind of nod, nod their head at, you know, this kind of story of Jesus uh, living and dying and rising from the dead. And so I want to ask all of you here this morning, like, are you, are you more in that camp? Are you more indifferent when it comes to the cross of Christ? Or are you like absolutely drawn in? absolutely accepting and receiving what he has done for you. We need to understand why Jesus was crucified, but then we start to understand that, that those who embrace this gift that he offers will then respond to the death of Jesus with extravagant devotion. So, so let's finish up chapter 11 and then move through the first Eight verses of chapter 12. Uh, this is how the story continues. It says this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Huge festival celebration uh, is the Passover that was remembering the acts of God in the past. Okay, it, it says this. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? 
that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Let's not forget that important detail. Um, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. What we we see going on in this this story, this dinner scene, this celebration, okay? This this was a meal that was, as John says, it was for Jesus. It was, it was a meal we can safely presume that was a meal of gratitude and honor for the fact that, oh yes, Jesus caused their brother Lazarus to rise from the dead. And so what we see in this story, there are three, I guess you could say four counting Lazarus, but there are kind of three main characters that dominate the story, okay? There is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. There is Judas, the the follower of Jesus that wasn't much of a follower at all because he was about to betray Jesus. And then, of course, there is Jesus himself. And so the story goes that that as they were having this celebration, that uh, Mary moves uh, maybe away from the table and she grabs this bottle of precious, expensive ointment. Some scholars believe that this this pure nard was maybe brought in all the way from the area of Nepal, where it would have been extracted in this very uh, tedious process to to grab all of the the precious oil and and, and aroma that that was contained within that oil um, into this this bottle of, 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 of oil. And you say, well, okay, like a Roman pound, what was that? That was 11.5 ounces. Um, is, is that kind of like, that doesn't seem like too much, all right? Like I know when I get a bottle of perfume or whatever, it's going to cost me 40, 50, you know, maybe like 1.7 or 3.4 ounces. Um, but like uh, 11.5 ounces, that's okay, that's nice. Um, but how precious was it? You know, like, was this a big deal? Judas is talking about 300 denarii. Like, what is that? 300 sounds like it could be a lot, you know? Like, none of us just probably have $300 just to kind of throw around, you know, here or there. Um, but, like, was that, was that a huge deal? And the answer was absolutely it was. Why? Because, because a denarii was worth, guess, guess what, a day's wage. 
So you do a day's wage times 300, and then now all of a sudden you have a bottle that is worth a year's worth of labor. And so there is no doubt about it. As, as Mary comes into the room and she has this precious oil and she pops it open and she starts to anoint the feet of Jesus and, and takes the, the, the kind of glory of her hair. Culturally, a, a woman's hair in, in ancient Israel would have been seen as her glory. And she humbles herself and she pours the ointment on his feet and she rubs her, his feet with her hair. People in the room, most of the people would have thought that she had lost her mind. They would have seen her actions as absolutely reckless. What is she thinking, taking this this year's worth of wages and then now pouring them out on this rabbi known as Jesus I want us to consider today that she gives us a picture of extravagance. Extravagance. To be extravagant means to be excessive. It means to be carried away, to lack restraint. If we say that someone, you know, kind of lives an extravagant lifestyle, it means that, you know, they're, they're, living, such, they're living in such luxury that it seems that it, that it even goes beyond kind of rationality. You know what I'm saying? Like we were walking down Boylston Street yesterday. We see these two Lamborghinis. I mean, they looked all right. Um, but two Lamborghinis and then this Ferrari. You know what I'm saying? And I'm saying like those people, you know, I don't know. My, my Pathfinder, you know, has kind of got that clear coat chipping off and stuff. Like I can't really identify with, with but I mean, that like, I'm going to, you know, but that's extravagant, right? Crazy, like out of control kind of luxury for people to experience. And I'm just saying like what she was doing was like way beyond this by comparison. She displayed extravagant devotion, taking this year worth of wages and, and using most, if not all of it, in a matter of seconds, and then we see this contrast, right? Like John is, he's ordering his story in such a way to help us kind of understand the, the points, right? So he pops in Judas's comment about like, hey, what's she doing? Why are you wasting all that money? That could be given to the poor. And John just comments and says, look, you know, like Jesus had shady followers too. It's like, it, it, he's only saying that because he wanted to help himself to some of that denarii, right? <laughs> So Judas was, was selfish. He was concerned about his net worth. But Mary was selfless. She was concerned about the worth of Christ. And so she, she teaches us in these actions, she, she teaches us two things about extravagant devotion, okay? Uh, number one, extravagant devotion begins by seeing the incalculable worth of Christ, all right? Extravagant devotion begins, okay, it starts with seeing the incalculable worth of Christ. I mean, let's, let's, again, I know I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I want you to keep thinking about it throughout the week, all right? Like, she does this in part, all right, because Jesus just caused her brother to rise from the dead. Like, anybody kind of feeling some gratitude about that? Anybody kind of in awe, amazed, like just overjoyed that your brother was dead, now he's alive because of this man? This is what sparked 
her extravagant devotion. She saw that Jesus had the power to defeat death. That she is in the, pow- she is in the presence of, of someone who has power over anything in life, even, even over death. And, and you say, well, well, well Tanner, like, okay, that's huge. And, and, but, but, but you see, what was going on with Mary is this. She not only witnessed powerful love, she experienced powerful love. You guys follow me? It's not like kind of like, oh, I see that with my eyes, and that's pretty amazing. But it's, but it's deeper than that. It's more intensely personal than that. It's the difference, I think, between perhaps you, you, you're walking down the, the sidewalk and you see a kid running out in the road. And you're too far away, but you see an innocent bystander drop everything that's in his hands and he darts out into the street and he scoops up the kid and saves the kid's life. That's witnessing something happen. Uh, But but let me tell you what's experiencing it. it. It's experiencing it when it's, that's your kid. What if that's your kid? Your amazement just went over to weeping and quaking for joy. One makes you really happy and you're going to talk about it for a while. The other makes you have unending joy and you're going to talk about it for the rest of your life. This is what Mary was experiencing here. And I just want to ask you, like, do you see Jesus like this? Do you see that, that death has met its match in Jesus that, that, that death crumbles under the glory and power of Jesus. She sees the worth of Christ and then she responds to the worth of Christ. By the way, this is what worship is. We, we say all the time, we're going to like, God made us to worship. None of us have done that perfectly. We just talked about that. But like, that's why we were made. We were made to know how great God is and then to respond and to reflect how great God is. So a simple definition of worship is, is this. Worship is our response to what we value the most. And so clearly, no one in the room had to have any doubt in that moment that for, for Mary, Jesus was more precious. He was worth more than any other person in the room or any other possession in the room. That's worship. And so when I see stories like this, it just, it just causes me to say, okay, like, Tanner, how are you, how are you worshiping? Is there anything that's pressing into my life that I am starting to potentially value even good things, even relationships, even work, even accomplishments, even pleasure. God doesn't mind these things if they're rightly ordered, but sometimes these these things that we love become greater than our love for God. They become valued more than we value God. And we then are what? We're, We're worshiping those things. Mary is a picture of of pure worship, of unrestrained devotion, extravagant devotion. It begins by seeing the worth of Christ. And then number two, it ends by expressing our love for Christ. So, So we see, and then we respond, 
and we express our love for him. The natural product of true faith in Christ is affection for Christ, check this out, that cannot be hidden. When we have extravagant devotion for Christ, then that will be revealed, not concealed. Like, like when we sing these songs, like the, the Micah and the team so, so, so lead us in so well, like is it doing something like kind of in us and to us and even through us? Like, you know, we hear Jesus died and he rose again. And like, does that like, does that lift us? At, like, does that lifting us up? Like, are we moved by that? Like, does that put a smile on our face? Maybe even make us raise our hands. Like, I just can't contain myself. Like, God, you're amazing. And I know some of y'all are like, man, I'm smiling in my heart. My hands are lifted in my heart. And listen, listen, I, I know we all worship differently. I'm not saying there's no cookie cutter approach. Sometimes the most reverent posture can be on our face and our, our hands are buried and you know, it's, it's not about a style. It's not about one expression over the other. I'm just saying when we see the, when we see the glory of Christ, we're going to be moved to express ourselves. We're going to be moved to, like, want to talk about how he changed us. And, and I know, like, we start saying, like, Tanner, extravagant devotion, and this sounds really like 300 denarii, and that's a year, like, am I supposed to sell my car? Am I supposed to sell my house? Like, am I supposed to give it all to the poor? Like, what does extravagant devotion look like in our daily lives? And I'm just saying, you know, probably for most of us on a daily and doubt basis, okay, it's going to be things like this, you know, um, being patient with a coworker that's driving you crazy. Like just, just putting Jesus kind of up here and saying like, Jesus, you've asked me and you've modeled for me how to be patient. And so I'm just going to be patient with them even when I don't really want to be patient. God, you're going to change my wants and I'm going to live like you. Like that's extravagant devotion. Or uh, giving up your anxieties over to, to Jesus. You know, like 1 Peter 5, 8, that one's been rocking me this week. Like, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's extravagant devotion. Open up your Bible and hearing from him and receiving life from the word like you're doing today. This is actually part of extravagant devotion. Thank you for being here. Picking up some trash in Medford Square with other citizens, making our city a better place. That could be part of extravagant devotion. What about spending some time encouraging someone who's struggling? Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's just sitting there with them. Man, I, I know you're going through a lot. Just tell me about it. Just bending a listening ear. That can be part of extravagant devotion. It's not always kind of the most lofty kind of, you know, experiences in life that we sometimes equate like, well, that's extravagant. Okay, like sometimes God calls us to that and we should be ready to answer the call. If God says go to India or China or wherever tomorrow, then my life wants to be so devoted to Christ that I will extravagantly do whatever. But I'm just saying today when I get home and the kids want to watch, you know, uh, Willy Wonka for the 14th time, that's extravagant devotion. All right, so, so, so the story ends with this. Verse 12, chapter 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees as Jesus is coming into the city and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey 
this is the kind of king he is. And he sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Says that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what's happening here is this. Jesus is coming in and he is riding into Jerusalem, which means he is riding toward his death. And the people, there's such a clamoring about this this Jesus that he's giving sight to the blind and he's healing lame people and, and he's causing the dead to be raised. Many are thinking this could be our Messiah He's going to be the one that that saves us from the tyranny of Rome. By the way, that's what Hosanna, we sang it earlier. Hosanna means, oh, Lord, save us. Deliver us. And they call him the king. And and just note here, I know some religions want to say, like, well, Jesus never said he was the son of God. Uh, Jesus never said he was the king. I'm just saying, you know, Jesus is receiving this praise from hundreds of people. Let's set the record straight, okay? He knew who he was. He's the king, but he's not a kind of king like we might expect. Because what does he do? He says he, he came in not riding on a war horse to take over material uh, militaristically, thank you, um, but he comes in on a humble donkey because this is the kind of king that he is. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where you are great by being humble and you obtain victory through death. But he's not just a humble king. He is a powerful king. These, these words Echo Psalm 118, starting in verse 22, that says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Hosanna. We pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are shouting on the streets that are coming into Jerusalem. These very words, laying out palm branches, symbols of victory and royalty. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So listen, fear not, daughter of Jerusalem. (laughs) Fear not. He is a humble king, but he is also a powerful king, and he will have the last word. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to follow. That's the kind of God I want to live for every single day. And so just let me conclude with this thought. Those who follow King Jesus should reflect King Jesus. If, if Jesus is the humble king, then check this out. The way that we come to him in the very beginning to say we don't have it all together, that we need his grace and his help, and this is how we live every single day, we need to be humble people that receive from God his help day by day. But we're not just followers of the humble king. We're followers of the, of the powerful king. So we can have great confidence to live life in the strength that God provides, 
no matter what's going on, no matter what fears or anxieties pop up in our life, we hear these words, fear not, he is king and you belong to him. And so I want to invite my friend, Jessie Lee, and she's gonna help me wrap up our time by sharing her story. And then after we sing and we you know, receive the offering today, we're actually gonna transition downstairs and, and get to, to witness, I would hopefully even maybe say experience uh, her her baptism with her as she experiences it. Because she is an example of someone who has said, you know what, um, I now understand the cross. I know what it's all about. I see what Jesus has done for me, and I want to follow him as the king of my life. And so I just want to ask Jesse to share her story uh, as we wrap up our time together. Here, you can use, use this, Jesse, if you like. Hi, my name is Jesse, and thank you, Tanner and Redemption Hill, for giving me the opportunity to stand right here and share with you a little piece of God's story. I am from Malaysia, and I grew up in a um, non-religious home. So my family, we, um, we observe Buddhism and Taoism on special occasions. So we burn incense, we pray to, you know, Taoist gods. Um, but to me, it is more like a cultural practice, because for some reason, I've always believed in a higher power. But, um, you know, I was ignorant. Life is good. Who cares? And it, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, and I felt like something wasn't right, and it was like a downtime in my life. And I started to think about, you know, what the purpose of life, and I want to seek out. And a Christian friend of mine, he encouraged me to be like, you know, go look out for a church. Start from the closest one to where you live. So I found and got plugged into Redemption Hill. Um, <laughs> I just gave a fist pump to that, Jesse. Yeah. Um, so God works in many, many amazing ways. Uh, my first uh, Sunday here at the service, I was greeted by an angel. And yes, I'm talking about our very own Angel Garcia. Thank you. <laughs> And um, John Vickers invited me to the Somerville Community Group, which, by the way, is the greatest community group. For anyone of you who's interested, we meet on Wednesdays at the Costellos. <laughs> um, everyone in my community group is so sincere, considerate, knowing that I wasn't a believer. And they are so willing to share their experiences and, um, you know, their thoughts on God's words. And it's been so helpful. And Ellen, especially, takes the time and the effort checking with me, answering questions I have about the Bible, about Jesus. Um, through God's guidance, I've also got to know Becca. She's right here with me today. And she once told me that God has his eyes set on me, that I will not be able to run away from him. And lo and behold, he, she is right. Four months ago, on a Sunday, right here, uh, Pastor John Chastine was talking about the killer truth, that Jesus is God. Um, that Sunday, by the grace of God, God has chosen me. He has revealed to me who Jesus is. I am relieved. I am humble. I am satisfied um, because I know that God has my back. Um, what Jesus has done for me through his sacrifice for my sin on the cross and resurrection from death, I, 
um, I am so grateful. So here I am, ready to follow Jesus and experience the eternal life on earth. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome, Jesse. Thank you. All right, stay right here. I, I want to I pray for Jesse and, um, and, and conclude our time. But I just want to pose this, this thought. Um, maybe, maybe you have a story similar to Jesse. Like maybe you didn't grow up in Malaysia, right? Maybe, maybe um, you, you know, have a different kind of background. But you're saying, you know what? The, the light, like the light bulbs that went off for Jesse about Jesus and his cross, they're going off for me now. And so if, if that's you this morning, we would love to help you take a next step of what it looks like to be all in with Jesus and commit your life to now following him and, and receiving the life that, that he wants to offer you. And so you can let us know that today after the service. You can fill out the, the connect card on the back. There's a way that you can, you know, indicate that uh, to us. We want to help you take those next steps. But then also, and this is where I'm really convicted, I have a lot of friends like Jesse, that, that are exploring or want to explore more about Jesus. And so, you know, God is gracious to use people to help other people come to know who he is. And so let's all pray and take that step to help our friends. We can't, we can't snap our fingers and, you know, not everyone's going to believe like we believe, right? We, even though we may want them to experience what we've experienced in Christ. But certainly we can, we can help give them that opportunity. Okay, so let's pray in both of those ways today. Father, thank you so much for the cross of Christ. God, thank you that you have given us life through the death of your son. And God, it's our prayer that you would uh, bring many, many other people in Medford and these surrounding cities to the knowledge of Christ, just like you have for our friend and now sister in Christ, Jesse. So Lord, would you, would you uh, work in such a way that over this this next year, we see, we see many, many more people come into your kingdom as they receive the gospel. And God, we pray that you would use us in the process just like you use people like uh, Vickers and, and Ellen and the Somerville Community Group and, and Pastor John's sermon. Um, God, we, we ask that you would uh, help us to lead other people to the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for them and for everyone. So God, uh, we pray that you would continue to transform us as a church, that you would make us a worshiping people, and that we would honor you in every way possible because you are worthy of our extravagant devotion. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.